I didn't say this the first service, but I haven't preached in like three and a half years. So through, through, through the past week, in the back of my mind, I was thinking, Lord, if you could, I don't want anyone to miss church, but if you could just get everybody to go to second service so I can get a practice sermon in, that would be great. And for some reason, like Tito said, everybody wanted to show up at first service. So the Lord works in mysterious ways. Well, thank you, Mosaic, for uh, this opportunity to bring God's Word to you this morning. Um, this is a great privilege and an honor. I do not take this lightly. Um, Adam will be back next week. I apologize he is not back today. You have me, so you got to deal with it. But we're currently working through the Songs of Ascent found in the book of Psalms. Today we will be looking at Psalm 129. Um, these were songs uh, from Psalm 120 to 134 that Israel would sing on their way up to Jerusalem during three great feasts of the year. Today we're looking at the 10th one, Psalm 129. And so if you could open your Bibles or your devices to that psalm, we can look at what the Word of the Lord has to say today. And I do want to give you a heads up. I gave a heads up to the first service. Um, I'm a hillbilly from West Virginia. So I do not pronounce words right sometimes, okay? So if I pronounce something wrong, please forgive me, okay? <laughs> Just putting that out there. You may hear something and be like, what did he say? All right, Psalm 129. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back, they made, their, they made long their furrows. The Lord is righteous, he has cut the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turn backward. Let them be like the grass on the housetops which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder of sheaves his arms. Nor do those who pass by say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this opportunity, God, that we get Sunday after Sunday to gather and to worship you and to give you honor that you deserve. Lord, you are the king of glory. You are the king of the cosmos and you rule all things. And Lord, you are a place of rest for our weary hearts. Lord, would you today, by your Spirit, bring alive your Word in, in us. And Lord, would you teach us of your goodness and protection. Father, speak. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So being that the sermon series is named Soundtrack of the Soul, so these songs, we, uh, this collection of psalms, we've given a name to each sermon. And so for this sermon, I've named it, I Will Survive, by Gloria Gaynor. I'm sure many of you know the song. It came out in the late 70s. It's an oldie and goodie. Um, the reason I chose this song is because of this, the sentiment of surviving, I think, sits well with this psalm. Uh, the writer of the psalm is expressing, in my opinion, three ideas or points. So that's how I will preach it today. Uh, the first point being verses 1 through 3, suffering endured. Second point, verse 4, safety received. 
Third point, verses 5 through 8, shame prescribed. And the big idea that I would like for you to walk away from the sermon with, the big idea, you know, the, the understanding that I would like you to have this morning after you hear the sermon is this. The hardships that are prone to come our way will never break us because our God who sits on the throne will never forsake us. Okay, so the hardships that are prone to come our way will never break us because our God who sits on the throne will never forsake us. As you know, there's a lot of uncertainty in the world today. Um, We can be held captive by what we see on the news or on social media just recently with the possibility of entering into a new war, a war that would be or been much different than anything that we're accustomed to. Um, Or we see the racial division and hatred that's going on in our own country. And this stuff can really bring discouragement to us on where we are and where we're headed as a society with all the hate that seems to be broadcasted on a daily basis. We can look at all these things and say, man, we are in a mess. And we are in a mess. I mean, that is true. But even with all the commotion and brokenness and hysteria that's going on around us, we, the people of God, have a hope. And I want us to see that hope today. It is a hope that cannot be altered. Now, sometimes within us it can be shaken, but it is still fixed. And the hope is that God is with us and He is for us. Suffering endured. I think many of you know who C.S. Lewis is. Uh, C.S. Lewis was a great writer, thinker, philosopher of the 20th century. He wrote, he wrote a children's uh, novel, a series called The Chronicles of Narnia, which here recently were turned into films. Um, he also wrote a pretty famous uh, Christian book called Mere Christianity. If you haven't read it, I would suggest reading it. It's a really good book. Well, someone once asked C.S. Lewis, why do the righteous suffer? And C.S. Lewis responded with, why not? They're the only ones who can take it. Now, we can hear that and say, well, I know people who suffer and they're not Christians and they're seemingly doing well in life. But knowing little about Lewis and how his mind operated, I think there's a deeper truth that he was getting at with that response to the question. And the truth that I think he was getting at is that the righteous are the only ones who properly know how to take suffering, understand it, and apply it to life. In these first three verses, we see a proclamation or an exclamation of the suffering that the people of God have endured. Notice how the writer uses the pronoun me and the possessive pronoun my in these three verses six times does he use these pronouns? What the psalmist is doing is he's identifying himself and the people there with the history of suffering that God's people have endured. While in a sense, this affliction that he is pointing out might be inclusive of his life, and it probably is, possibly is, being at the time a lot of people think this was written, that's not the whole idea that he's trying to get across. The writer is speaking of and speaking to the long history of Israel's suffering, filled with captivity, affliction, oppression, and hatred from those around them. I want to take a brief look back at what's being referred to here. 
and that is the covenant that God made with Israel. In the book of Genesis, the first book in our Bibles, in Genesis 15, God makes a covenant with a man named Abram. And this man is a man he called out of a foreign land, and he, he promised this man. He said, I will be a blessing to you, and I will bless you and all of your descendants. But not only that, in Genesis 15, God tells Abram, Know that for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and they will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. God was referring to Israel's captivity in Egypt, in which the Israelites became slaves for 400 years. Then this man, Moses, comes along. God calls this man to be the voice of freedom to these people and bring them out of Egypt. So Moses brings Israel out of captivity. And you would think after 400 years of oppression and affliction and slavery that everything would be all right, right? No, it is not. Again and again, God's people are oppressed and afflicted. Afflictions in the wilderness, afflictions from the Philistines, afflictions from the Syrians, the Assyrians, the Persians, then brought into Babylonian captivity in which their temple of worship in Jerusalem was destroyed and they were deported to Babylon. Again and again, God's people are oppressed and afflicted. And this is where we land in this psalm, a remembrance of times afflicted. Look at the imagery that is used in verse 3. Plowers plowing upon my back, they made their furrows long. The imagery here brings to mind heavy machinery, used to make furrows in the ground for planting of seed or for irrigation. And the psalmist, is, the psalmist is saying, this is what they have done to me and my people. They have buried pain in our backs. The imagery here is grotesque, and it's supposed to be. It's supposed to bring to mind the image of a man's back and the flesh being ripped, ripped off it. But how does this affliction that is spoken of in this psalm, connect to us, the New Testament church. I was listening to a speech by Ligon Duncan about a month ago. Um, it was in regards to the establishment of the church compared to other world religions. Now, Dr. Duncan is the CEO and Chancellor of Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi. I think he was giving this address to seminary students, and he was describing the difference between the birth and growth of the church versus the birth and growth of the second largest world religion, Islam. And he wasn't arguing for or against. That wasn't the purpose of what he was discussing. He, he said he had read a book by a secular historian who had, I mean, this guy had no theological leanings, but this book was comparing and contrasting Christianity with other world religions. And the book outlined how and by what manner Christianity grew in its infancy versus how and by what manner Islam grew in its infancy. And there was a striking contrast between the two. Islam was birthed in the 7th century, and for the first 700 years of its, of its existence, it flourished through conquering lands, peoples, and kingdoms, for about 700 years, it grew by the strength and might of its sword. In contrast, the birth and growth of Christianity was brought about through affliction. The apostles that wrote a great majority of our New Testament were martyred for their faith. 
Christians were hunted down, some even fed to lions in the Colosseum. It was a risk to take on the title Christian. And this was the narrative for the majority of the early church. And this may be news to you, which I hope it is not, but this is still the narrative for many of our brothers and sisters around the world. I read an article this past week. It was published in January of this year. The title was, Christians, the most persecuted people group in the world for the second straight year. The seed of the church, the seed of God's people, the seed that has always been planted for the growth of the church, historically speaking, has always been the seed of affliction. But I don't think many of us in this room, I don't think many of us have experienced or will experience affliction like this. I would venture to say that the majority of us probably will not die for our faith in Jesus Christ. So what does persecution, affliction, trials, and tribulations look like for us here in Albuquerque, New Mexico? Here's a few things that I thought of. A loss of a job, a spouse who doesn't love you, a friend who betrays you, a child who seeks life contrary than the way that you raise them, or a co-worker who seeks to destroy your reputation. Now these things aren't necessarily placed upon you because you're a Christian, but because you're a Christian, the enemy will use these things to afflict you in many ways. We have a real enemy. The Bible calls him the accuser. He goes about like a roaring lion seeking to devour you. He and his minions, they hate you. They hate you. Satan, Lucifer, the devil. The Bible gives him a few names. He wants nothing more than to see you miserable and living a life full of defeat. He will use that strained relationship that that you have to plant seeds of envy or hatred. He will use that loss of your job to instill doubt for the future. He will use that unloving spouse to feed resentment towards others who seemingly have a flourishing marriage. The Apostle Peter tells the church in 1 Peter chapter 5, Be sober-minded, be watchful, because your adversary, the devil, seeks to devour you. And the hardships that we face in this life, we must be mindful that we have an enemy who wants nothing more than to see us downtrodden and defeated. The Apostle Paul gives us an outline in the book of Ephesians chapter 6 for combating the enemy. He says, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And then he goes on to explain what the armor of God is. But how or why do we even have the ability to put on the armor of God? Why do we have that ability, or even how do we have that ability? Verse 4, the Lord is righteous, and he has cut the cords of the wicked safety received 
Why have God's people been able to endure such hardship? I mean, if you really look at the history of God's people over thousands of years, to be quite honest with you, we shouldn't even exist. The church shouldn't even exist. If you look at all the affliction that God's people have went out went through uh, throughout time, it's amazing that we're still here. So how is it that the church has flourished and grown like it has in the midst of all this hostility toward it? Well, there's a simple answer, and it's a weighty answer. That answer is God's faithfulness to us. God's faithfulness to you. God's faithfulness to his people. God is the one who has preserved the church. God is the one who has kept his people. And God will preserve his church. And God will keep his people. This is why in verse 2 the psalmist says, Yet they have not prevailed against me. It's because of the truth that is found in verse 4. I was in the military for a few years, and with the job that I had, the training we conducted was uh, training built around going to war. We prepared for battle when we'd go and ha- uh, go into the field and have field props. We would train for battle. That's the job I had. And so let's say that we were going into a war, and we were going to be a ground force going in, and at, before we went in, I said, you know what? I really don't need this helmet to protect my skull. I don't need this body armor to protect my major organs. I don't need this radio to call for help if help is needed. I don't need my weapon to combat the enemy who's trying to kill me. If I did all that, if I forsook all of those things that the military had issued me to protect me, that would be me begging for death. When it comes to the spiritual, emotional, and for some, the physical battle that we face in this life, It is not by our own strength that we can overcome these afflictions and trials. But it is by the one who issues the helmet, who issues the body armor, who issues the radio that we use for prayer or the weapon that we call the scriptures. It is God who grants to us the perseverance to overcome. It is God who takes the afflictions that we endure and grants to us the beauty of His faithfulness. It is beautiful. This is why a 16th century reformer could exclaim, It is the lot of the church of God to endure many blows and not inflict them. The church is an anvil that has worn out many hammers. Affliction and oppression may come, and it may be strong, but your God, my God, He is stronger. So how can we be sure that through our suffering, whether it be minuscule or severe, how can we be sure that God will be faithful in protecting us and keeping us safe? Believer, Christian, look no further than the cross. Look no further than the affliction taken on your behalf. Look no further than God's commitment to rescue you. Look no further than the cross. God is the champion for the oppressed. There's an old hymn written. It's called, I Have, Def- I have Decided to Follow Jesus. 
We've never sang this song, and we probably never will. But the story behind this song is a story of God's faithfulness to keep us faithful while using our affliction to bring others to himself. If you're taking notes, I'll repeat that. The story behind this song is a story of God's faithfulness to keep us faithful while using our affliction to bring others to himself. The song was originally written in Hindi, a language of India. And the formation is attributed to an Indian missionary, and I'm probably going to destroy his name, but I'm going to give it a shot. Sadhu Sundar Sai. There it was. And this song was given a melody back in 1959 and placed into many hymnals of that time. Um, it's still in many hymnals around today. And the lyrics to the song read, I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back. Though none go with me, still I will follow, no turning back. The cross before me, the world behind me, no turning back. The story behind this song comes from a village in India. About 150 years ago, there was a revival that happened in Wales, England. And as a result of this revival, many missionaries went out into northern England, uh, northern India to preach the gospel. And I want to read to you an excerpt from a book called Why God Why. It was written by a missionary from India. This, he was a result of what had happened there. And he outlines what happened to the village. And he writes, The tribal communities were quite primitive and aggressive. The tribesmen were also called headhunters because of a social custom which required the male members of the community to collect as many heads as possible. A man's strength and ability to protect his wife was assessed by the number of heads he had collected. Therefore, a youth of marriageable age would try and collect as many heads as possible and hang them on the walls of his house. The more heads a man had, the more eligible he was considered. Into this hostile and aggressive community came a group of Welsh missionaries spreading the message of love, peace, and hope in Jesus Christ. Naturally, they were not welcome. One Welsh missionary finally succeeded in converting a man, his wife, and two children. This man's faith proved contagious, and many villagers began to accept Christianity. Angry, the village chief summoned all the villagers. He then called the family who had first converted to renounce their faith in public or face execution. Moved by the Holy Spirit, the man sunk his reply. I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back. Enraged at the refusal of the man, the chief ordered the archers to arrow down both of his children. As both boys lay on the floor, the chief asked, Will you deny your faith? You've lost both of your children. You will lose your wife too. But the man replied again, singing, Though none go with me, still I will follow, no turning back. The chief was beside himself with fury and ordered his wife to be arrowed down. In a moment, she joined her two children in death. Now he asked for the last time, I will give you one more opportunity to deny your faith and live. In the face of death, the man sung, The cross before me, the world behind me, no turning back, no turning back. He was shot dead like the rest of his family. 
But with their deaths, a miracle took place. The chief who had ordered the killings was moved by the faith of the man. He wondered, why should this man, his wife, and their children die for a man who lived in a faraway land 2,000 years ago? There must be some supernatural power behind this family, and I too want that. As mentioned in the previous point, the church was born in affliction, and she thrives in affliction. This man wasn't moved to stand for his faith by the mere strength of his heart or by his will. This man's God, our God, kept him upright and faithful. And through that faithfulness, God brought the persecutor and the entire village to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. So how do we respond to those who would see us destroyed? How do we pray for those around the world being afflicted because of our shared faith? Or better yet, what will be the ultimate outcome of those who persecute and oppress God's people? Point three, shame prescribed. Now we come to a difficult section in this passage. Verses five through eight can be difficult to understand, being some of us, even many of us, we're probably not used to praying what's called imprecatory prayers. Um, an imprecatory prayer is to p- pray against or to pray a curse upon someone or something. But listen, the psalmist isn't saying or asking God to do anything that God hasn't already promised he would do. And that promise I mentioned earlier to Abram, and that same promise God tells Abram, I will bless those who bless you, And I will curse those who curse you. When God was making these promises to Abram in Genesis 15, Abram stood as a representative of God's people. So God tells you, God tells his people, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. In verse 5, the writer says, Let all those who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backwards. But what is Zion? Zion was a hill in Jerusalem where the city of David was built. It was, where the temple, it was where the temple was located, and it represented a place of God's presence, a place where God would meet his people. So there's a deeper implication that the writer is getting to here. The implication here is that the people of God are hated not because they're special in and of, them, in and of themselves, There's nothing special about you. We are hated. They are hated because of the disdain that the peoples around them had for their God. The Bible makes it very clear of the natural state of our heart. Our heart in its natural state is idolatrous, seeking self-pleasure, self-interest, and at war with the ordinances and laws of God. So when we see persecution against our fellow man, it is nothing more than the outpouring of what already exists inside. Now this doesn't mean that everyone who is against our God will come at us with sword and with shield. Of course that isn't the case. And right here I just want to take a moment to address something I think needs to be addressed. There are many groups of people out there that will take this passage, these verses, and that will use them 
to justify and condone actions they take against others because of the way they look. You cannot claim your allegiance to the color of your skin and people who look like you and call them supreme above others and call yourself a Christian. You cannot. It doesn't work like that. Our God is not a God of just the white man, the black man, the Hispanic, the Asian, or what have you. He is a God of every type of man and every color of man. I just wanted to say that because of what's going on right now in our country. I'm going back to the passage. It isn't always the case that the people who are against our God will come at us with violence. This hate that comes against us can look like many things. It can look like a shutting down of a privately owned bakery because the owner takes a biblical stand on marriage or the closing down of a person's medical practice because they refuse to conduct abortions, or someone losing their job because they refuse to conduct or perform a sinful act. And the enemy will use these bent hearts to bring you oppression. Christian, hear me. It is okay to pray with this passage and say, may they be put to shame and turn backward. May they be like the grass on the housetop which has no root and withers away. When we see the affliction and persecution of our brothers and sisters in Christ, it is okay to pray that the schemes of the oppressors would come to nothing. Now, if someone cuts you off in traffic, it's, it wouldn't be okay to say, God, may that idiot be turned backward and put to shame. <laughs> That's not the purpose of this, and that's not the situation to use a prayer like this in, okay? The purpose of the prayer in verses 5 through 8 is to see those who are avidly against God and his people, those who would like nothing more than for the gospel of Jesus Christ to be rid from the world. The purpose of this prayer is to see their schemes and plans brought to nothing. And in verse 8... Brought to a point to where those who look upon their deeds do not bless them. Or as we would say in modern English, good luck or best wishes on what you plan to do. During the time of planting and harvesting in the Middle East, which is still the case now, when the, well, when the psalm was written, it's still the case now, but if a fellow countryman walked by and saw you plowing in your field, getting ready to sow crop or to harvest, they would yell out, may the blessing of the Lord be upon you. It was basically wishing prosperity upon your harvest. What the writer is asking God to do here is to strip away the prosperity that the enemy sees from afflicting God's people. Okay? And again, it is okay to pray that. It is okay to pray this when you turn on the news or log on to social media and see people fighting against the basic human rights that others are fighting for. It's okay to pray this against the people who take women across borders and sell them as if they're produce. It's okay to pray that their schemes come to nothing. The main reason it's okay to pray this is because God has already promised it. God has promised that he will make everything right. And that is our hope. Our hope is found in God's promises of one day, one day righting every wrong and making every crooked line straight. 
As I was preparing this sermon, I read the Psalms many, I read the same Psalm many times over. Now, one thing I could not get over is how much of the gospel is found in this Psalm. Reading this Psalm should point you straight to Jesus. Jesus literally had his back plowed into with cords and with whips until his flesh was ripped off. The affliction that is, spoke, that is spoken of in this psalm is an affliction that Jesus took on himself. Jesus, God in the flesh, king and ruler of the universe, stepped down out of his throne, off of his throne in heaven, was born to a lowly family, escaped persecution and death when he was young and fled into Egypt, became a man, a man who was ridiculed by the religious leaders of his day because he loved on people like you and people like me, broken people, helpless people. He was arrested, he was, a, he was whipped, he was scorned, and then he was given a cross to die on. And it was on that cross where the wrath and affliction that should have come your way and should have came my way, was placed onto another who didn't, in any shape, form, or fashion, deserve it. And through this one, this one called Jesus, through his death, burial, and resurrection, we have hope. And that hope is that God is with us, and he is for us. And one day, everything will be made right. Trust in this one. Trust in him who brought defeat to the afflictor. Let us pray. God, we thank you that when we are weak, you are strong. Lord, Lord, help us see the strength and might that is found in you when we are tried and tested. Apply the truth of your word to our heart to our weak and fragile hearts, God. Keep us vigilant. Let us not be taken or broken by the schemes of the enemy. But even more than these things, Lord, help us to see your Son as our Savior and protector and defender and more beautiful than anything. We thank you, Lord, and we pray these things in Jesus' mighty and matchless name. Amen.